The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. afternoon and uh, welcome to uh, another edition of Restoration Radio. Uh, my apologies for the little bit of a technical hiccup we had at the beginning of our intro music, but what you were supposed to hear and what you heard for most of it was uh, the beginning of the Kyrie from uh, Mozart's well-known coronation mass, uh, KV317, which although it as I understand, it wasn't actually performed at the imperial coronations of 1790 and 1792. That's certainly what it's associated with, and I thought it was an appropriate lead-in music for the topic of today's show, which is dealing with uh, the social doctrine in terms of economics and politics of the uh, Catholic Church. I am uh, your one of your hosts today, Nicholas Wansletter, and I'm joined today by Mark Ames, as my co-host, who's filling in for uh, Stephen Heiner and Dr. Hugel, who weren't available to join us today. Uh, listeners who follow the, the blog Durandall will know Mr. Ames from there. He's uh, uh, my uh, co-editor, well, really the founder of Durandall, and I just kind of have uh, latched on to that. And he um, is a uh, someone who puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to Catholic social theory. And in my view, he's uh, somewhat of a homesteader, lives in the country, I has a lot of chickens and goats and uh, things like that, and is a father to a, a goodly number of children. Is it seven now, Mark? Uh, eight. Oh, eight. Okay, my apologies. So uh, he'll be, uh, I'm sure, a great fill-in for uh, our usual co-host. And the uh, guest that we have on today, I'm very happy to have with us today John Sharp, who is uh, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, a formal submarine officer, uh, holding the uh, rank of uh, lieutenant commander, as I understand it, before he left there, and also he uh, had a position as a public relations uh, uh, officer, and for our purposes, uh, most importantly, uh, he is an author and publisher of nu- numerous articles on uh, Catholic uh, social doctrine and economic theory, and he is the chairman of the publishing house IHS Press, which uh, publishes a large number of books on that theme, which is based in Virginia, and I understand he's also currently working towards a Ph.D. at the University of Delaware. Uh, so uh, welcome to the show, John. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Nicholas. It's good to hear your voice again, and same to you, Mark, uh, after we spent some time together, uh, I guess, 
what is it was still this year, right? I, I start to lose track after a while. It was How actually exactly almost exactly a year ago at the okay, uh, well, restoration last year. conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Right. So uh, I think the best place to start in our discussion before we get into the what is the social uh, doctrine of the Catholic Church is maybe why is this something that laymen should know about and be discussing? Why is it important for laymen and not just something for theologians or maybe some individuals of, of a certain standing? And so I think we're in agreement, and I'd like to discuss that laymen have certain rights and duties in this field, and what are those rights and duties? So maybe if you could start us off with your thoughts on that, John. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it, and and it's really uh, it's going to be a challenge. To I know we have about an hour program or something, so it'll be a challenge to keep uh, focused. And I, I will. Uh, I'm known for being a bit of a I hesitate to say windbag, but I do like to talk because the subjects are quite interesting. So we'll we'll try to uh, inject some discipline, or at least I would ask you to do that. And feel free to shush me and move me on to the next topic when the time comes. But uh, the social doctrine of the church is in many respects unremarkable because it's just part of church teaching in general. The Catholic faith obviously gives us certain theological truths um, and, and in a way it, it emphasizes certain historical truths the crucifixion, the resurrection, the virgin birth, these are all historical realities but the faith sort of confirms them with God's authority speaking through his church uh, so these are certain uh, things we have to believe but as Catholics there's a whole other section of, of uh, church teaching and as she exercises her authority that tells us what things we need to do or how we are to live our lives. And obviously it doesn't legislate or regulate those things down to the last detail. Um, for the most part, once a Catholic has uh, certain firm principles in mind that he's digested and, and taken on board, then it's up to the conscience and the virtues of, uh, you know, the cardinal virtues of prudence and justice and to a lesser extent temperance and fortitude that that help us determine in any given situation what the right thing to do is uh, but as um, men have frail intellects and they are drastically shaped by the environments in which they live so if they live in an environment that's not good or even just neutral then the support that they're supposed to get from tradition and history and culture and the family and the network of families that form towns and villages and societies as that weakens uh, the church correspondingly fills the void, if you will, with more explicit teachings, whereas a sense of justice in an ideal world is a thing that's automatic because it's socially recognized and everyone has kind of a common vision of what it means to behave in a just way. Uh, the worse things get, the more important it is for the church to be explicit about what the demands of justice are and how men who live in common are supposed to uh, abide by them and act upon them. So the social doctrine of the church Again, I say unremarkable because in many ways it's just the basics of the Catholic faith, the basics of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the natural law, um, common moral teachings that the Church uh, applies specifically to questions of men living in society, which is you know very broad, deals with the family, deals with economic relations, uh, industrial relations, relations between nations, and so it's, there's a global kind of an international relations aspect as well. Um, and the social doctrine, insofar as it involves the laity, there's there's what I hope would be an obvious connection, because based on the principles I just mentioned, most of church social teaching, there may be exceptions I can't think of any at the moment, deal with 
the question of man's life in this world, in the temporal order, and there's many different ways to refer to that order, and I think in some cases they're interchangeable, but in other respects it's important to keep the terminology very clear. So we can talk about civic life, which kind of involves you know, the citizens' participation in politics. We can talk about temporal life, which would be uh, distinguished from eternal life, which is sort of life after the grave and, you know, when we hope to make it to the right place, so to speak. Um, and then there would be, you know, political life versus strictly ecclesiastical life and sort of life within the church in terms of things that the church specifically has charge over. So the social doctrine in general covers all those things that involve uh, non-ecclesiastical or secular, if you prefer, life uh, this side of the grave. So we're not talking about kind of a spiritual life that looks towards eternity. We're talking about the here and now. And again, in the realm that's principally civic, political, economic, uh, social, governing man's relationship with with his fellow man and all of the institutions and social structures that he has developed over the centuries to sort of explore and to elaborate and incarnate those relationships. Right. Um, and I think that, if I can just jump in there, I think... Yeah, please. There's an important point there that, as you say, it's obvious, and I, it would be, I think, completely obvious in a more Christian time, a more sane time, but the yeah, fact right. that laymen are the ones that are in the world engaging in this civic life, and monks and priests and religious they may partake of it in a to a certain degree but certainly a lesser degree than the lay people are so right there is point one of why this is something that concerns us and isn't something that necessarily uh, we need to just sit back and wait for the priests to lead on and really shouldn't sit back and wait for the priests to lead on because yeah I absolutely absolutely and and i'll i'll uh, return the favor and interrupt just briefly by saying I think one of the one of the points why occasionally we run into some trouble or you have a lot of differing views is because when you say the word doctrine it, immediately and I think correctly it evokes to a Catholic uh, some body of knowledge uh, that is being taught and so you say well look the teaching authority of the church that's where all this comes from so the church the church's authority is engaged in teaching how we are to live our lives and that's um that's all very true, but as you rightly pointed out, um, a priest is not necessarily running a business or running for office or running a homestead, as Mark is doing, or dealing with questions of family relationships and whatnot, except insofar as he's called upon as kind of pastor or shepherd souls who are engaged in those particular problems. But the reality that I've found, and I would be more than happy to admit of or hear of numerous exceptions, is that because those things don't intimately touch the life of the priest. They, they, in general terms, tend to be have less expertise on those questions. I, I do know through you know, reliable first, second, third-hand sources that this is not a major source of study in terms of seminary training and whatnot. There's a lot of catch-up that's done just based on the, the, the garbage academic standard that exists today to just get people up to speed with basic intellectual skills. So the seminary certainly doesn't have time to do a whole year or even six months on the social encyclicals and whatnot. Um, and then you get to the point where if the laity are ignorant of the social doctrine, it's not likely they're going to come to the priest and say, well, Father, in the confessional or outside, I'm confronted with this horrible problem. I want to charge my customers a just price, but I'm being run out of business by my more powerful competition. This is a moral issue, etc. So 
in, in many ways the priests respond to the demands that are placed on them by the faithful. And if the faithful are coming to the priests with questions on these affairs, but instead they're saying, you know, oh, Father, I didn't like the sermon, or I saw you didn't take the maniple off during the prayers at the foot of the altar after Mass, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then these are the things that people tend to bicker about. And, and the, the larger question of how an individual Catholic who, as you say, is not in a seminary or in a priory or in a monastery is supposed to confront the major questions of social life, which includes just, you know, life in the family circle and then how families relate to one another. Uh, this is a big problem. It's a big void, and it's something that, that uh, Catholics, I think, need a major wake-up call on to, to emphasize the importance of this. And is it a, uh, is there perhaps uh, another problem? Like, uh, I don't have much experience with Europe, but I know this is a soapbox that Mark sometimes likes to get on at Durandal, so I'm going <laughs> to yeah. ask you to jump in here, but the role of Americanism, or not even Americanism per se as the defined heresy, but just America, living in America, being Americans, do, do you think that plays part of why people don't want to go to the priest to, to talk about these things, because they've, they figure the, the state has it sorted out, or... Uh, I guess my view, I, I've I've sort of vacillated on the question of Americanism in the sense that whatever's uh, heretical, I'm you know as a as a reasonable Catholic, I'm more than prepared to sort of sign on to whatever the Church has condemned. I likewise condemn, and vice versa. So I, I have no issue with sort of whatever whatever the authority has stated on the question. I tend to give, I think, American Catholics now a free pass. Maybe I'm getting older and more charitable and not wanting to be judged too harshly myself. So. My feeling about that is that the the phenomenon of the American Church uh, was was a kind of tragic one from the beginning. In that, uh, and I think the clergy are principally responsible. My my sense of the history of Catholicism in America is that the bishops, particularly, and and maybe they passed this on to the priests, suffered from a bit of an inferiority complex. Um, the American sort of economic engine and its status in the world, it, it got up to speed so quickly and became so important and such a beacon of you know hope and freedom and all this kind of uh, uh, PR uh, smoke and mirrors to some extent that the teachings of the church that suggest like to you know refer to Belloc, one of our heroes in terms of social doctrine and Catholic history, who says, look, uh, if certain Christian nations in Europe are considered and Neared at as economically backward because they just don't produce as much. They tend to be kind of content with this modest peasant uh, lifestyle as opposed to the industrial powerhouses, England, Germany, etc., being the primary examples. For Catholics, that should be a badge of honor. Like, we're not in this life to produce the maximum amount of stuff. We want to have a reasonable life, but uh, create an environment in which we can practice virtue and get to heaven, which, which, by the way, to address one of the points on your program today, that if we need like a one-line definition of the social teaching of the church, that's it, is that all social organizations should conform to the ultimate norm of making the salvation of individual souls as easy as possible. So just a sort of right. something to remember, you know, when we we're done with the program and someone says, gee, what did I learn? That's at least one yeah. point, is that that's the social teaching in a nutshell. Um, yeah. But to just very briefly go back to your point about the United States, I think the clergy immediately saw a conflict as as the Pius IX did in the syllabus between modern progressivism and modern progress and this this sort of 
fetish of modernity, like all things contemporary are good, and we've got new technology and new gadgets, and we're cranking out stuff like nobody's business, and we've sort of we've left that superstitious medieval backwards baggage behind. And the United States incarnated that view in in certain respects, and I won't say all because there's a few important exceptions, but in certain respects, um, or certainly in the minds of the immigrant clergy, the United States incarn- incarnated that view. Whether that was a correct assessment or not is a bit beside the point because subjectively that was their view. And seeing the conflict between this this medieval, you know, again I say superstitious in inverted commas, uh, baggage of Catholicism versus this uh, colossus of American growing, burgeoning American capitalism, I think the clergy were just hesitant to emphasize those, you know, quote-unquote negative aspects and, uh, and and to try to find as many ways as possible to vindicate the Catholics' uh, role and willing participation in this sort of new, you know, new order that was being created in the early uh, 19th century. And, and so at that point, I think the social teaching of the Church, really until the early 1900s when there's a, a resurgence, becomes kind of a bit of an afterthought for for the mainstream American Catholics, both clergy and lay. Right. Well, you know, I I don't want to focus too much on the negative, and we're going to have lots to talk about what what is, on the positive side, what are the Catholic teachings. But, Mark, uh, I'd like you to just comment briefly, if you could, on um, the uh, Austrian economic model that we hear a lot about and seems to be very popular among traditional Catholics and would probably cause some, uh, uh, those who hold to that view would find our show quite controversial. <laughs> yeah, um, well, first of all, you, you mentioned prudence, and it seems to me that when we're talking about the American church and bringing it closer to the day, there's, uh, it seems to me that it's used as a shield for a certain amount of respectability. Um, the world can be saved by capitalism and Uncle Sam, and don't hold a position which um, conflicts with the common the common thought of the day. And it seems to me that with your Austrian model, that's especially, I mean, it has a big a big following, um, not only inside the church, unfortunately, also amongst libertarians and the like. Um, uh, to what extent, I mean, do we do we have a right to to Exist when we have uh, uh, various clergy who wish to um, more or less keep us respectable. Um, I guess that would be my only question I was thinking of when you were speaking earlier. Right. Yeah. And I suppose that is, there is a bit of that that tendency, and I, I I suspect there may be a bit of a overreaction to the I don't know if you'd necessarily call it anti-clericalism, but we see in the uh, what we may call quote the mainstream church unquote Novus Ordo, where there's the relegation of the clergy really into the background. Maybe it's a bit of an overreaction to that. To this, I see somewhat of a maybe a hyperclericalism sometimes of people that they're not willing to do anything unless Father is telling them to do it or has given it their blessing. And I think. The reality we have to recognize is, in part, what John was pointing out is that to get, they don't really have the time in a modern seminary to get into this as deep as they can because they're dealing with uh, 
young men entering the seminary that need to be brought up to the certain uh, academic standards to begin with, but I think it's also reality that traditional priests today have their plates so full with doing Mass in one town at 8 a.m. and then traveling three hours to do Mass in another town and then traveling after that Mass to do Mass in a third Mass center for some priests and uh, running schools and uh, running newspapers and doing all the things that traditional Catholic priests have to do. Uh, I mean, things that the priests of the past did, just there were way more priests to spread the work around back then. So maybe they don't have the time to be... Uh, going and uh, pushing us to get involved in these things, and that's why uh, laymen have to be a little proactive in this area. Right, and, and I think um, the, the, you know, the reality is that, the, that a grave divide or, a, or a, a really substantive divide in terms of daily life between the clergy and the people I think is, is artificial, at least in the ideal and theoretical sense. Um, there's all kinds of different historical manifestations. I thought when you mentioned anti-clericalism of the circumstance in Europe where, sort of strictly speaking from a historical point of view, anti-clericalism is really uh, an anti-Catholic movement in formerly Catholic states. So you, it's very powerful in certain periods in the 19th century in France and Italy and elsewhere. But this is basically a larger movement against Catholicism itself. And the priest then just becomes the symbol of that, you know, the little children, the stories of them spitting at the cassocks and whatnot. I mean, that's a, that's a, um, it's the right literary term, that's a synecdoche for a much larger um, hatred of Catholicism itself, which for any serious Catholic, that's as much an attack on a Catholic layman as it is a Catholic priest. And so I think this dichotomy where the laity are sort of the raw material like the clay in the hands of the potter, they just sort of sit and do, you know, whatever they're told, they don't think about it, they're not involved. I mean, that's and I don't want to be unfair to people who are not like that. So obviously we're saying the exceptions are the people who don't fit this mold, but the unfortunate impression that you have is to a large extent that's just kind of the Catholic body. It's this amorphous mass, and, and the clergy are trying their best to nudge it forward, and that's fine. And if I were in their shoes as the authority, I would have the same worries and the same concerns. But the reality is that a Catholic man... Uh, regardless of his state of life, nobody's going to nobody's going to take the blame at the last judgment when he's on the verge of losing his soul, and he says, "Oh, well, Father, this or my boss, this or you know the president, this or the governor." Or, but I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're as uh, as the Duke of Norfolk says to Thomas More in the Man for All Seasons, "Your life is in your own hands, Sir Thomas, as it always has been," and it's not the right. You know, the circumstances of that movie, for listeners who are familiar with it, it's not necessarily flattering circumstances, but I think the point is very well taken. In other words, we all are the masters of our own destiny. You know, By God's grace, we, we come out on the right side, but the idea of waiting around for somebody else to tell us what to do or how to do it or what we need to know to do what we need to do is, is really uh, laughable. And it's just this general cultural lethargy, I think. There's no spirit of crusade or resistance or, or even just the basic indignation at injustice. I mean, even even things we hear are so much about, well, you shouldn't get too excited about things you can't help. Well, I mean, I don't remember reading that in any of the classic uh, philosophers or in St. Thomas. Certainly, you're, you don't act like an idiot and try to change things that you can't at the grave risk to yourself or your family. But I, I don't remember reading anywhere that a man shouldn't be outraged, I mean, even to the point of boiling anger at grave and gross injustice. And to the extent that our 
you know, our systems, uh, our social systems, both economic and political and whatnot, are, are characterized by this manifest injustice in so many different ways. I can't, I can't fathom any sort of apathy in the face of that, unless you've just completely lost your, I mean, your own personal, not so much a social conscience, but even just your personal conscience. So there's there's plenty of arguments, I think, um, you know, in favor of. Uh, why the lady should take all of this, this whole broad subject that we're talking about, very much to heart and to not wait to be told to do it, but to start to reflect on the significance of it and, and to uh, and to move forward. Right. Well, I think we've uh, well established a point that sets us up well to move into a bit more of the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. what is the Catholic social doctrine. And we've already talked about that a little bit, that it's, uh, common, well, I don't know if common sense, but I mean, it's fairly uh, it's nothing to some deep secret. I mean, it's just the application of the Catholic faith to day-to-day life. But I, I, I think the point was well made about how in a, a time period where everyone's Catholic and the Catholic faith permeates society, you don't need encyclicals like uh, uh, Rerum Novarum or Quadragesimo Anno because right. it was just known. But we're in a time period yeah. where these things are necessary, and having mentioned just those two encyclicals, uh, probably telegraphed to some listeners, that, oh, these guys are all distributists, which is a controversial term that I've, and, and I think you'll agree with me, John, because I seem to remember you making comments to this effect at your conference, that, uh, I mean, I don't think we're that interested in having a specific label or that distributism is really an accurate way of describing it, because this isn't some ism, this is, well, if it's an ism, it's Catholicism. Right, but, right, um, right, or or, or you, you're even more generically, you can say, I mean, like some nonsense word, like truthism or realityism, I mean, at the end of the day, we just want to live in conformity with the nature of things as they are, that man has a soul, which is a, a, composed of a will and an intellect, so he's got a creative intellect to, to use in his daily life, he's got a will to, to make decisions. Uh, all of which, with God's grace and the supernatural assistance that sort of is layered on top of the natural uh, creation, that then leads us to eternity, you know, again, God willing. And the, the entire, as I mentioned, just as a quick summary to, to flesh out your point, uh, if I may briefly, is that the, the social doctrine, I mean, we can, I, I think where you're headed, and I agree we can cover some maybe quick bullet points about some of the components, but in a, in general terms, it's... Uh, um, looking at social organization and social life in light of the eternal destiny of of man. And if I can throw out, could I have time to give you like two or three very quick examples of where that's um, written down that, that sure. I think may yeah. be useful for people to go back to? I mean, one is if you go back to uh, De Regno of St. Thomas, the, the little sort of manual on govern, government that St. Thomas wrote for the King of Cyprus, uh, he gets into a lot of you know, from for this program, we might consider trivia. You know, where should the ideal city be built? How high of an altitude? How many people? I mean, all of interesting points, but a bit off the sort of the moral subject, uh, at least directly. But he says, uh, you know, what kind of laws should the king pass? He says, well, the well, the purpose the purpose of men living together in a community, which is, i.e., being in society as opposed to Robinson Crusoe, you know, by himself out in a treehouse in an island somewhere is to live well. And when he says live well, he, he, there's a very clear caveat. He says, I mean the Aristotelian notion of living well, i.e. virtuously. 
And then as a Catholic, so he's not just a virtuous pagan, he says, but but living well is not an end in itself. We live well to achieve beatitude, i.e. to make it to heaven. So uh, the king must command those things that lead to beatitude and forbid the contrary. And, of course, there's plenty of caveats where St. Thomas says, I don't mean a hyper-bureaucratized state where every little thing is commanded and every little thing is forbidden and whatnot. I mean, this is the general spirit behind the doctrine. And then he says, of course, the king, if he's assuming he's a Catholic, as he would be at that time, uh, learns what which things lead to beatitude and which things uh, do not conduce to beatitude from the priest, from, in a sense, the teaching authority of the Church. So you have a, you have a perfect statement in, in maybe four or five lines of the text that this is the notion of Catholic, a Catholic social order, is it where the society is organized to conduce to man making it to heaven. And, and there's a perfect passage uh, in uh, Quadragissimo Anno, which you mentioned, that says exactly the same thing, and those are separated by, you know, what, about seven centuries in terms of uh, time. Um, and there's another perfect passage in Pius X's encyclical Il Fermo Proposito, which is uh, to the bishops of Italy on Catholic action, and he, he tries to summarize, well, what is Catholic action? And he just, again, he takes a stab at it in a paragraph, three or four or five different sort of examples or way to think about it, but then he says, in a word or in a nutshell, if you have to boil it down, it is the action by the Catholic laity to make public law conform to justice and to suppress public laws that are contrary thereto. Uh, and again, it's not all of it, but it, it talks about, I, I think it points out that this whole notion of Catholic social doctrine involves uh, public matters, social matters, and to make all those rules and regulations and systems and laws and customs and everything else um, ultimately submit to this one global rule, which is to help man get himself to heaven. Um, and again, we can get into details and examples or bullet points of sort of components, but I thought that was important to lay out that this is, you know, I think it goes back to what you said, that it's not there's a fair amount of common sense uh, about all this, but it also, I think, is radical because we, we're not accustomed in our secular, you know, state with separation of church and state and all this rubbish. We're not accustomed to thinking that public life has anything to do with the individual man or woman getting him, him or herself to heaven. Yeah, and I, I think where I'd like to go with the conversation is uh, talking about some totally practical, like what are things that individual traditional Catholics can and should do. But I think before we get into that, I think it's worth talking quickly about uh, capitalism because that's, well, that's supposedly the system that we're in. I'm not sure that our system is actually a capitalist system with the amount of government intervention that goes on and all other kinds of kinds of nonsense. But I think it's worth talking about that briefly just because we may have a lot of listeners. And again, when I was mentioning the Austrian school earlier, there's a lot of people like, yeah, I agree with everything that you're talking about. Yet they would be, having said they're in agreement with that, they would be all in favor of the current system we have or saying, well, we just need to get more capitalism uh, going on uh, and and all will be good. Or, uh, you know, saying that... uh, in taking it into the the political realm, saying like, well, you know, the war in Iraq is a crusade against uh, Islam, so we should be all in favor of that. And I think everyone on this show would be in agreement that um, we're in disagreement with those types of positions I've just thrown out there. So I think it's worth making some distinctions of why we say that 
having this Catholic attitude of having man's beatitude as the the goal of all this, why doesn't capitalism, as we know it in modern society, uh, mesh with that? Right. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's good. And, and by um, analogy or or a, or a corollary or implication or whatever, I think we can. Um, we flesh that out for just a minute, we can end up with also kind of a nice bulletized list of if you leave sort of generic political questions or maybe even family and some of the other things, we can't tackle everything obviously in the short time that we have, but we can end up with a nice sort of bulletized list of at least a few principles of uh, a Catholic economic vision. And I'm not, I don't want to say it any more than that because I, I very much appreciated your point about we're not into an, an ism distributism is kind of an unfortunate the historical accident it was mentioned by a few guys who had a meeting you know that was uh inaugurated by a certain newspaper at a certain time in a pub in the south of england and who cares what it's called because it's just it's such a it's such a distraction and it's so stupid to have arguments over names uh, unless unless the argument is also about the substance underneath the name and i think that hopefully takes us back to the question of capitalism which i can you know, get into, or if, if you or Mark want to offer other uh, thoughts at this point. Well, Mark, why don't you jump um, in? Because I know you're the one, you, uh, again, I keep going back to Durantal, and I know you're probably our, our foremost uh, anti-capitalism guy, if I can put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I, I can't help but wonder to what extent capitalism ever truly exists. It seems to me that there's always to certain extent between the state and uh, your few that have the wealth. Um, yeah, and Mark, can I, I let me? I know I'm the. Excuse yeah. me for interrupting you, but I know I'm the. Uh, I'm supposed to be the victim today, but I wanted to ask you if, like, when when you say cat, or maybe also you and Nicholas both, I think it would be helpful for me in the conversation, maybe also for people who are with with us. Um, to just say, in a nutshell, if it can be done in a nutshell, what do you mean at least, or what do you think the definition is of capitalism when we say that? Because especially when you say we don't know if it's ever existed or maybe we've never had it, etc., I think it's very helpful for clarity to, to say, like, what is the what is the thing that we're talking about, you know, beyond just the name? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I, as I understand it, well, speaking for the libertarians and whatnot, they would say it was government uh, basically staying out of the free market. But it seems to me that the government has never put out the market. Uh, uh -huh. There's no such thing as a free market. I guess that was my, my point. There's always manipulation on, on behalf of those who have money uh, for the state. Um, right. For me, I guess it would be the concentration of uh, property that uh, generates wealth in the hands of a few, aided by um, a sexually state, I would say. Uh -huh. It's basically my understanding. You can correct me if I'm completely off my rocker. But no, no, not at all. And and I think, I mean, I really just wanted to know like where you were coming from, because I think ev everybody will, and in many cases, these debates become so counterproductive because you have two people arguing who are at least in their minds, thinking of capitalism in completely different ways. And the, the mm -hmm. beginning of uh, the beginning of Chesterton's 
outline of sanity is quite good because uh you know in his witty way which some people find annoying because he does he does expend some time before he comes to his point but i think at the very least in this case it's defensible because he goes into these excursions about well, if capitalism means X, then not only am I a capitalist, but every communist is a capitalist. And if capitalism means Y, then there's never, ever been a capitalist. And if capitalism means Z or Z, as the as the English would say, um, then it depends upon whether you accept A, B, or C. And, I, and it's, uh, again, it gets a little silly after a while, but it does nicely illustrate the point. And so you're, you know, let's say from your comment, you've gleaned two, at least two principles. Number one is uh, an absolute minimum of government intervention, and as the as I understand the Austrians, at least the classical ones that go back to von Mises in the you know early 1900s, um, their argument is that the only time that the state can act is really to enforce a contract. I mean, the state is basically just supposed to help one private party put the screws to another when the latter uh, defaults on an obligation that he's undertaken. And uh, so again, you're you know, immediately we come to the truth of what both of you have been observing, which is well, why in that case, do you sanction state involvement? I mean, either either what you're really arguing for is complete and total anarchy with, with a non-existent state, and this was always my objection to what I thought Joe Sobrand's economic position was. I never thought it was well articulated, but ultimately when he was really pushed, you end up with kind of a view of many Catholics who say, well, uh, we all are just going to practice virtue and we all get along and we really don't want any public authority at all because it's always going to be coercive and it's always going to uh, mismanage affairs and whatnot. And um, I think there's a they have a lot of history on their side. There's no question about that. And I, if, if I can just risk about 30 more seconds off the subject, one of the objections that you very frequently hear with distributism is anytime you start talking about uh, imposing just reasonable sort of not not intrusive but kind of mild limits on the acquisition of wealth by the powerful in order to defend the little guy and his ownership of his own trade or business or small piece of land or whatever immediately you hear catholics of of the kind i think you're speaking who normally would be uh, with us say well that all may be fine but we certainly can't entrust today's government like i certainly don't want president bush with that kind of power or obama or nancy pelosi or whoever the you know victim de jour is of of your political uh uh rhetoric and you know in a way that's i mean it's a, it's a, on the one hand it's a perfectly understandable point but on another hand it just justifies as far as i'm concerned the role and the need for a better understanding of catholic social doctrine in the first place in other words by all of us asking the state to do its role, however limited that role may be, we're not suggesting that no other limits of Catholic social teaching apply. I mean, the whole ethos of what we talked about early on in the program is that uh, the public authority is supposed to pass laws that, uh, that that uphold justice and that lead man to virtue. And so no one is suggesting, well, let's, let's turn President Obama into like Mr. Uber, uh, socialist slash distributist who can take money away from everyone with no limit or restraint whatsoever, because that no no real Catholic who understood social teaching would suggest such a thing, right? I mean, the right. idea is that there are always limits to the exercise of of power by any entity in the in the social uh, setup. But I, I I apologize because I jumped in and sidetracked you a little bit, and I don't know uh, Nicholas if, well, if Mark I, ever I, got I, a I, chance I, to make the point that you wanted him well, to make. I I think we're we're, we're he, we've in the process of making it, and I'm inclined to continue down this path because this is the type of discussion I like because we're coming out with some of the uh, some more some concrete uh, applications here. 
so two points I would I would just uh, point out that the first is I I think it's a, a good point. Like we're not saying that uh, President Obama should be invested with with certain powers. Like we're saying that the the whole government should become Catholic, and this is what a Catholic government would would look like. And but going to the second point that I want to deal with, like versus this kind of anarchist view of things, in my view, uh, it, anarchy is not in keeping with Catholicism, I mean, because I think it denies implicitly original sin, this idea that if we're all left alone and there's no coercive state to keep us in line, everyone's just going to get along well and people are going to behave virtuously and it'll be at least better than what we have now, but I think that they implicitly denies original sin and the uh, wounded nature of uh, mankind that tends towards evil uh, or is certainly tempted that way and therefore there's a need for at least some level of of state to coerce them into doing the right thing on some occasions or to at least assist the church in uh, maybe ha- having a bit more uh, uh, Right. More yeah, and a, and a, yep, yep, and and a point. If I just, if you have a thought that I'm interrupting, please hold on to it because it's not my intention to get uh, too far afield. But your, the thing I want to throw in on that point of uh, the coercive power of the state is, I think it's extremely important to remember also for all the anarchists who, who shudder at the thought of any time any public authority. Of, of whatever echelon, and in many cases, the guilds, which the distributists like to talk about, were not, um, you know, let's say we're not talking about the federal government rank, uh, regulating or, or coercing a small village fisherman in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, the, the, the distributist model has a good bit of subsidiarity built into it, which is that local authorities do what they can, and you only have uh, recourse to a higher and more distant authority if, if it's uh, beyond the capacity of the small one to do what needs to be done. So all the guild regulations were municipal. You know, In the town, they manage their own affairs, and to, to a large extent, the regulations were made up by bodies of tradesmen who themselves were subject to the regulations, so it was all very democratic also in, in a... In, in in the only good sense of that word, if there if there is a good sense of that word. But the the other thing I wanted to mention on the coercive power of the state is all of the classical writers on politics from an Aristotelian and Catholic point of view talk about uh, the state really exists to restrain vice. In other words, you're not going to have laws passed telling people how many rosaries they're supposed to say and what their kneeling posture should be during certain kinds of litanies and how many times they're supposed to spank their kids if he does this kind of uh, misbehavior or any of this kind of in- intrusive sort of the nanny state you know that we hear about uh, complaining about it, particularly on the Lou Rockwell type uh, sites which is all the objections there I think are all made very well taken and no one disagrees with them but the state principally and from a Catholic point of view in addition to fostering an environment where it's easy to be good really just tries to restrain the wicked so that the good are unmolested in their possession of virtue. And I think that's a very important point because it's not so much of, uh, you know, the, not, the reaction is, I don't need the state telling me to be good. Well, it's not really the state's primary role, at least in practice. The real issue is, don't you want the state to tell your, your murderous, conscienceless neighbor to leave you in peace? 
And I would think even the most hardcore libertarian would endorse that view because we come back to the contract where you make a business arrangement with your neighbor and he wants to breach his contract. Well, then you have von Mises and Hayek and all the rest of them, uh, Rothbard, the full authority of the libertarian economic establishment will immediately march behind the notion of the coercive power of the state upholding a contract because they feel that private enterprise and whatnot is damaged. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the, the, the weak link in the libertarian armors. The, the minute they acknowledge any role by the state, they are um, in effect giving away the game. They're saying, well, yeah, there is some notion of the social order that we have that should be upheld by the state. And then as it turns out, and Mark, this is probably where your main focus comes back into play, it just turns out that we and the libertarians have a pretty radically different conception of what an ideal social order is. But but both of us have recourse to the state to, to uphold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what Nicholas is, is saying. We don't we don't see capitalism now, but I, to a certain extent, they're not consistent with what anyway. And it'd be very difficult to see a society built in fact, I don't think you ever could on their actual principles, except for you know, you would have you wouldn't have a society. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah, another good point, another perhaps bullet point that came up in the discussion there was subsidiarity. And we don't really have time to get into that more than mentioning it, but, John, you gave it a good uh, thumbnail uh, definition there. Um, so, But we're going to have to move along because we're rapidly burning through our time. For anyone who's uh, just joining our show, this is Restoration Radio. I'm uh, Nicholas Wansbutter with the uh, co-host, Mark Mess and our guest today is John Sharp, uh, chairman of IHS Press, and we are discussing the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, and I think we've just covered off a, a decent discussion, granted just really scratching the surface, but hopefully something that could generate some further discussion among our listeners, among themselves, among other people that they know. But what I want to get into is talking about some practical things that that our listeners can do, that, that we can do, that we are doing to make um, uh, it, it a reality in our own lives or to apply uh, Catholic social teaching within our with our own uh, in our day-to-day life. And uh, so uh Homesteading or back to the land movement is something that comes up fairly frequently. Um, we may more possible for some, some than others, but uh, I guess that that would be one step. Uh, starting gardens or trying to get more into the country. Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly would endorse that a hundred percent, and I think in terms of. Uh, another economic bullet point, if you will, that can be coupled with your sort of next segment on practical initiatives. The point that didn't come out that maybe should have in our discussion of capitalism is that uh, in the modern historical manifestation of what people call capitalism, you know, whether we've ever achieved it as an ideal or or whatever, um, the reality is that the bulk of people make uh, their livelihoods, in other words, they get what they need, food, clothing, shelter, and then anything beyond that uh, by 
carrying on some activity at the behest of someone else in, in exchange for which they get paid in cash, and that cash then, as is, so despite the fact it's becoming increasingly worthless, then they take to the market to buy what they need. And if there ever, I don't think there ever was a complex economy that didn't involve exchange and movements of cash or whatever, but if you put one extreme in, in the, the most rugged of homestead situations where almost everything that is consumed is produced on the homestead by the family as a, as a productive economic unit, and then the other extreme of the lawyer, uh, present company accepted with all affection, sort of who lives in town, um, who bills his clients but doesn't do a lot for his own economic needs. He just puts the cash in his pocket and then spends it as he has to to meet his economic needs. You know, those are kind of the two extremes. And uh, capitalism certainly pushes everything towards the extreme where everyone is carrying on activity for cash that they then use to buy what they need, and fewer and fewer people are producing what they need themselves or in small units and small groups. And I think the pre-capitalist world is characterized principally by the predominance of the small group local domestic production. And there was never an idealized thing where everybody was a happy yeoman farmer and we all live happily ever after, but the bulk of, of uh, economic production really, that certainly that was consumed by the average, uh, you know, quote-unquote middle class, which is a bit of a term, you know, like a sort of Marxist proletarian term, but the, sort of the average situated family uh, there was a lot that was produced either at home or in conjunction with friends and neighbors and uh, you know fellow tradesmen or fellow farmers and I think the back to the land I, so that's a uh, you know an ideological principle if you will and the back to the land idea uh, correct me if I'm wrong and Mark you obviously have the experience here because I'm a I'm a fairly stinky gardener although I continue to try um, I think the back to the land idea is just a version, if you will, of the overall message, which is to try in your individual situations as best you can to regain control over the production of your necessities. And in many cases, that's difficult, if not impossible, because of the social situation. I mean, mortgage debt is a, is a massive problem. Uh, property tax is a massive problem. All these things require a, a, a huge volumes of cash for the average family to generate. Uh, the lack of knowledge and skill is a massive problem because if I if somebody pulled the plug on my home or office and I had to go back to a rugged existence where I had to do most things with my hands and with human power, I would I would be on the way to starvation, you know, relatively quickly, you know, without a serious injection of effort and 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 know-how, which you know perhaps the force of circumstances would help us all get very quickly. But I think there's you know there's these three or four major issues that every catholic or every sincere man who's a you know either a proprietor for his own affairs or has a responsibility for a family needs to work on and chip away at and i think there is a moral a bit of a catchphrase so forgive me but i do think there's kind of a moral imperative to do these things i mean many people i i have lots of friends who are very good friends and very sincere catholics who have high paying jobs in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere, they, many of them work for the federal government or they work in other lines of work in corporate America, and they have a big paycheck, they take care of their family well, they donate large sums of money to the church, they donate their time freely to you know, go in and sweep up the church on Saturday or do some painting or some handyman work, and, they, and, and in all respects, they seem like model Catholics in the modern era, and yet it never occurs to them that 
by limiting their economic activity to a situation where they go out of the home for 8 to 10, 12, maybe more, sometimes hours a day. Uh, who knows what they're doing that's of any real value. Uh, they come home exhausted and miserable because they don't have a lot of fulfillment. Like, they, you know, pretty much forgive the expression, but it's the old thing like, well, I hate my job, but I've got to make the money. Um, outside of the job context, they are good family men and they meet all their responsibilities, but it never occurs to them that to creatively find ways to slowly move out of that situation and to regain a certain independence and a certain control is, is an extremely um, urgent thing for the peace in the family, for the health of the family, for the psychological sort of well-being of man who needs to create and needs to build and needs to work, um, and for a dozen other reasons. And that's, you know, in terms of, Nicholas, you wanting to limit this part of the quick discussion to just what things people can do practically. Obviously, if you multiply one man who's trying to move in this direction by four or five families that are close to him geographically, well, you have a, a relatively quickly, you have a critical mass of people who are working together, brainstorming ideas about how can I regain some control of my own uh, economic destiny? How can I trim my expenses? Do I really need the, the superfluous things that I buy that require me to have the job where I'm away from home 10, 12 hours a day doing God knows what? Uh, or can I restructure my whole my life really in order with the main goal of being in the home more frequently and generating some productive uh carrying on some productive activity in the home and i think that's the um certainly one of the main messages of the catholic social position and i think it's also quite controversial and it's quite radical because even rerum navarum is really very soft on this point i think leo was dealing with the problem of industrial proletarianism and socialism and uh, I don't think that he felt it was feasible or possible, whether for good, bad, or indifferent, to basically tell the Catholic workers, instead of granting them like a limited right to agitate in defense of better working conditions and higher wages and whatever, what he should have been telling them is stop being wage slaves. And clearly it's not only the workers, it's a problem of Catholic proprietors and the whole economic setup, but the idea of moving the economy in a direction that is not characterized by wage slaves. I mean, all the every time you turn on the news, if you're, you have the misfortune of doing that, all the economic discussions, or let's say at least half, you know, the bulk of what dominates the discussion, aside from what's happening with the Fed and the Dow and certain other indicators, it's all about employment. Every single serious discussion about economics particularly the spin that comes from the U.S. Labor Department and elsewhere, it's always about unemployment. And right. that's a modern phenomenon, right? You just don't you don't have that um, before some time in the 19th century where employment is now the chief indicator of a nation's economic health because who knows what these people are doing. The jobs are all overseas, most of them. They're useless things. I mean, I'm you know, you have people in Bombay being hired by corporations to do customer service calls to ask, uh, well, you know, you clicked onto our website. Can I spend 30 minutes doing a survey on your satisfaction? Like, did you like how right. the buttons work? I mean, give me a, this is ridiculous. The whole economy is insane because right. we've, we've, you know, un unanchored economic life from the three basics of food, shelter, and clothing. And that's, I think, partly driven because the whole mentality of a man with his family as like a small economic unit, with other families, I'm not talking about isolationism, you know, in the family and domestic sense, but with small units, producing what they need, uh, you know, where it's going to be consumed, this is the Father McNabb vision, that's, that's 
gone and and i don't i don't think it's gone for any reason other than you know our we've we've kind of been caught asleep at the switch if you will we went to sleep in the late early 1800s and we woke up a century later and found the world the way it is and then you just hear oh well you can't turn back the clock but of course you can turn back the clock every man can chip away at his own mortgage and look to do a different line of work that will bring him closer to his family and figure out well how can i involve the children in some home production so even a man who lives in an apartment who goes to work every day on the subway the very first tomato he plants and puts out on his balcony and says i'm going to slice that and put it in my own sandwich today that's a revolutionary act and and it's and it's a it's a catholic one and it's um I mean, again, I, I think maybe it's an overstatement to say it's a moral imperative. I'm not suggesting that if you decline to take my invitation, you're going to rot in hell. Um, although I don't think it's worth risking, because I think to sit on your uh, posterior and just say, well, it's it's uh, either say there's nothing I can do about it, or worse, say I feel no, I feel no pressure to do anything about it, because uh, like, what difference does it make if I just have a nine to five job for the rest of my life? My kids all go to the university and they have a good living and an inheritance and. 401ks and life insurance and I mean this is this is uh, well, you know, we've been sold, I'm going to I'm going to have to cut you off there because you're just making yeah, so many good do. points you're making so yeah. many good points yeah. that, that well we're not losing them but I'm not able to comment on them or try and bring us something further but uh, no that's fine and I and I'm glad I I'm, I'm you could have cut me off a lot earlier with with no hard feelings because I well, could it, yeah but uh, all, I could all good for a while stuff. on that yeah all, all good stuff but I think one important point there. I mean, one is here going through, I'm just saying, like, well, it'd be interesting to see how different the economy could be or how things could change if instead of, again, all this talk about, oh, we need to create more jobs, if more people said, you know what, I'm going to go out and start making something. And it's a yeah. shame that yeah. I don't see more Catholics doing this because I have started to notice on the Internet you can start finding these little home-run businesses. Like, uh, I... Uh, Actually, and I find a lot of these through a blog that I follow called The Art of Manliness because, interestingly, they're not Catholic at all, but they're into this idea of running your own small business. They're, they're kind of from you know being the, you know the master of your own destiny type of position. But you find neat businesses that are starting to emerge. Like um, uh, I bought my briefcase from the Saddleback Leather Company. It's a man and his wife, and they're I don't know if they have kids or not, but. You know, a family that they just make these high-quality briefcases that are fantastic quality. I mean, you you pay a premium for them, but they've got a hundred-year warranty on them because they're nigh indestructible. Right, right, um, right. But you know right. that that's an example there, and I'd love to see Catholics doing stuff with that. Or another um, Red Rooster um, trading company. I just found because I've been looking for the longest time for a, a hand. Uh, um, coffee mill, uh, hand-operated coffee mill, instead of these nonsense made in China uh, electric ones. Right. That, you know, after right. you right. ground right. out ten pots of coffee, it breaks. Um, right, right, and you just throw it out and get a new one. And and it's in, and half the stuff is engineered that way. I mean, I, I just as a quick tangent, we talk about capitalism, and maybe one of the other we can do one more practical bullet, and and another sort of theoretical or ideological bullet point is that. Uh, one of the other things that didn't come out earlier is I, I do think, although I have to say it did, I mean, I think Mark, when he said the idea is that government doesn't get involved, I think implicit behind that is the notion that the economy itself or economic life is not subject to the regulation of morality, that somehow right. it's in this separate, isolated compartment where morals, justice, fairness, whatever, well, that's like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a fair person, but I, it doesn't apply to what I, you know, my business. And, and um, 
I know lawyers take the brunt of all the jokes in that uh, respect, so I apologize for that. But I think it really applies everywhere. And you think about your Chinese uh, piece of junk uh, coffee grinder, um, you can read all kinds of stories on the net and elsewhere about the engineered obsolescence of even computer uh, equipment that has chips built in, that there's nothing wrong with the gear except it's designed to just stop working in two years, um, which is a crime in one sense, but on an, uh, from another point of view, you say, well, this is built into the capitalist system. And, and, and Ford confronted this problem in the big automakers in the early 1900s. If you're going to make a fortune selling gadgets to people, what happens when everybody, every home has one, and they've gotten one very quickly because of the big rush. Now, like, your market is gone. Nobody wants the stuff anymore. So mm-hmm. from that point of view, even, you're back to food, clothing, and shelter unless you rig the system somehow. And now you're right. talking about, well, does what does the just price have to say about me selling someone something that's supposed to run, but I haven't told him that it's designed to not run after 12 months because I need you to come back and buy another one. If you don't well, buy another yeah. one, yeah. I go out of business. And I would say that's, I, I think that's a form of uh, theft to be selling people things that you know are going to Oh, there's no question, no question. And, and, and the cases the case is addressed uh, directly in the Summa where, where St. Thomas says if there's a defect in the product that you're selling and you, don't, you do not reveal it to the buyer, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's crass injustice. And it's, again, one of the things you can say, well, um, however much the medievals are ridiculed by our... Uh, libertarian uh, counterparts i mean they were they were totally on to the to the nonsense that goes on and now it's just now it's just bigger and fancier because it's enabled by fancy algorithms that are run by computers so that it's gotten away from sort of the capacity of the average human intellect to manage and control but doesn't mean we can't uh, as you say these local initiatives i think they're all very in the best sense of the word they're all very subversive because they start to make some of these big conglomerates um you know, irrelevant. And we're not talking about trying to deprive people of their livelihood, but rather create an environment where the small men uh, have a chance of survival and that that whole way of life becomes an attraction and becomes uh, something that people start heading back to. Right. And and uh, just on that point, although my uh, <laughs> profession is, is one that perhaps rightly came under a bit of fire, although we still need lawyers, uh, whether we like it or yeah, not. So, yeah, right, um, right. But um, I can just say from having gone from being a civil servant uh, when I was a prosecutor to now being one of those terrible guys that tries to keep the criminals out of jail, um, that, there, that comes back to the freedom thing. And now that I'm my own employer, the that already I've noticed, I feel, is a positive thing because I'm not always worried about, oh, what if the, the, the government needs to lay off some lawyers because the tax income isn't as high, or if you're working at a firm, what if the partners decide they're not making enough money and they need to, you know, sack a few uh, of the lower guys so they can make more profit or whatever. I mean, now I'm... Right, right. You know, there is, there is just being self-employed, there's a certain level of having that independence but where i want to go next absolutely before we run out of time is uh, i think we've established some principles of why going back to the land is good um i think it's impossible in canada just because of the staggering real estate costs here for arable land i mean canada you've got a thin band right along the 49th uh, parallel that this uh, arable land and it's all owned and it i, I mean it's ha- it's right. uh, half a million dollars 
per acre in the area I live. So yeah. I mean, there's yeah. no way you can go back to the land on on right. those kind of prices. But may, I think there's some areas in the U.S. where it's more doable. And I, I just would like, Mark, if you could just talk quickly because you've done it. You're trying to do it. Maybe not not as uh, smoothly or seamlessly as some people would hope, but in this veil of tears, nothing goes completely smoothly. Could you just give us... Got that right. Mark, could, could you just give us maybe a few comments or a few tips on what someone could do or how someone can go back to land from being a city slicker? Because I think you were a city boy, grew up in the city, and you've made the transition. So it, it, in a few minutes, what are some thoughts on on accomplishing that? Yeah, I, for me, it was always keeping in mind why I was doing it. And for me, my main reason was my children was in the city, and it, it wasn't a good for them to grow up. And, and I thought of my childhood when, then, when we had a, a farm. And uh, though I didn't know much about it, we not live on a farm. But I started slowly. I started just uh, having a few chickens. You know, you can usually keep a few chickens alive. They're not that tough. And you sort of go uh, with your confidence, and you, and you make sure you ask. Ask around. I mean, there's a lot of farmers out there, a lot of people who have, you know, decades of knowledge. You need to tap into that, don't be afraid to. Um, but for me, it was just starting slowly because I couldn't, I couldn't jump in completely with both feet. I had other things too, but um, I think keep your priorities, keep, keep remembering what you're, you're doing while you're there, and, uh, and start slowly and learning from others. Uh, that would be my main advice. Uh, All right. Yeah, and I think those are some great points. But uh, we're starting to run low on time. And another thing I want to talk about, uh, John, uh, I know uh, you've got a conference that the IHS Press Group, I think it is, is is organizing coming up in a few weeks uh-huh, uh-huh. in Washington, D.C. So maybe you could just tell us a bit of uh, what that's all going to be about. And uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite... Yeah, I appreciate that. We can certainly uh very glad to have uh, as many as we can, but the entire discussion today really has has I think uh been a more than adequate introduction to the subject matter of the conference. Uh it it's intended to uh I mean, we're using a, a sort of an old phrase that the French used to use was saying pro- proclaiming the politics of Jesus Christ, which again is another way of shorthand uh, indicating that the whole political and social order really has to submit to what we know from revelation as well as from natural reason that uh, that virtue and beatitude are the, are the are the the only end of man's existence and that when the social order um, not only ceases to remember that but starts to actively oppose that um, and I think a really a proclamation of sort of tolerance, um, you know, becomes in a way aggressive. It sort of is a natural logical transformation that when you say, well, we don't really take a position on whether man has a final destiny, I mean, by itself, that that is an, that is an aggressive act against people who want to live uh, as if man has a final destiny that we need to worry about. So the conference um, intends to bring these points um, to public discussion. The D.C. location is not ideal, but it was kind of chosen for a reason to... to suggest that, um, uh, you know, as they say, the fish rots from the head. So the, the we're not anarchists, 
And the other point I was inclined to make that the conference, I think, will touch on um, when you were mentioning, Nicholas, about the fallen nature of man and the need for government as a result thereof. Uh, and I was thinking about this also in con conjunction with your saying we still need lawyers, that the, the profession of law and government itself as an entity um, these are really sacred things, right? Because if it's if it's all done the right way, I mean, how many you look at the calendar and the liturgy, and you figure out the number of laymen that are in the calendar, and you really don't just have average family men. Unless I'm mistaken, I would be willing to guess that a large bulk—I won't say a majority, but maybe a majority—of the confessors whose feasts are celebrated, at least in the Roman calendar, who are not clergy, are kings uh, or queens. Uh, they're not, you know, just sort of Joe the Joe the farmer's family man. As as wonderful as that is, in most cases, the sanctity of these individuals is is hidden and private. But um, the idea of a civil state who holds the destiny of men in its hands by the kinds of laws it passes and the certain atmosphere that it either fosters or militates against. I mean, this is a grave responsibility and the summa and all the other writings of the medievals and whatnot is just full of the the sacred uh responsibility if you will of those in authority over other men even if the authority is a delegated one or if you're into the demo democratic notion that uh you know the governors just represent the governed uh it's still a high responsibility and a high vocation and and uh um, the idea is not to just burn it all down and say, well, it's just a complete anarchy. The idea is to recall to the temporal power its duties, not as a servant of the church, which again gets us back into this notion of the rights and the autonomy of the laity. I mean, the king or the civil authority, if you will, um, certainly has a duty to acknowledge the faith as part of reality and truth that's been given to mankind. Um, and, a, and a duty to uh, facilitate the practice of religion by the citizens of the nation that are Catholic, but it also has a direct responsibility to God to uh, foster virtue and to make sure that vice in, in, in a reasonable and balanced and proper way, judicious way, is, is discouraged uh, and sanctioned by the law if necessary. Um, and, and I think the civil power, in a, in a sort of corporate sense, it's, it's really, um, it has to make an account to God uh, about how it's exercised its authority. And, and in a democracy, uh, as a practical matter, whether we like it or not, the modern state, um, you know, its, its own self-image suggests that the modern state is really a creature of the citizens. In other words, it's not like, uh, you know, all this hysteria about President Obama or whatever president people haven't liked from one era to the next, I don't. I'm not really phased by any of it because I think at the end of the day, the the citizens of a nation are responsible for its affairs. And if you think of the Irish, I mean, for 800 years they they chafed under British rule, and um, uh, they were uh, they were obviously uh, manifestly patient in uh, you know continuing a struggle for independence and whatnot. And uh, so it took 800 years. It took 800 years. You know, they say the old phrase, "Rome wasn't built in a day." So the idea of blaming our woes on this or that politician who's been imposed on the people against their will. Well, sure, there's a lot of rigging and hocus-pocus in elections and the media and, and who has the most money to access the airwaves and all that. That's obviously a problem. But I right. just think the um, you know the list of reasons as to like why it's not our fault is, is not an exhaustive one, and it just gets very old at the end of the day. And it's hard to look your children in the face and say, well, we just have to live with it because uh, there you go. That's 
that's the way right. it goes. I, I think. Well, in the 800 out. years, just puts to mind we, uh, on uh, Restoration Radio's uh, last show, we were talking about Spain and the Reconquista was about 700 years, and they didn't just say it. Yes. Oh right. well, we've conquered by the Muslims. Let's just pay the jizya, and we've got a got a deal with it. Yeah. I mean, they yes. were willing to persevere for centuries. Um, yes. But uh, can you give us um, a, a website that listeners can go to for more yeah, information? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I really do encourage. I mean, uh, we're, we, I know we're not running a popularity contest, so I'm not obsessed with the numbers in terms of you know people who will find the program of interest will attend, and that's that. But I, I all that said, I do definitely want to. Um, encourage uh, them and I appreciate you uh, mentioning it and I you know, certainly would like you to continue to do so in whatever appropriate venues uh, you have access to or whatever um, uh, you know to whatever degree you think that's appropriate because the little bit of buzz uh, to use the modern phrase I think is um, very helpful but the the idea was to do a series of conferences um, it's, it's all. It's easy to plan a series. It's also questionable whether you're going to execute the plan, right? Because the first one is usually the litmus test as to whether it's going to be viable. So, what we thought was an idea of rebuilding Christendom. So the website is just rebuilding Christendom. Uh, it's a dot com. Uh, you better type the triple W just to make sure it's supposed to go. If you do www dot, or if you just put in rebuilding Christendom dot com, but I think. Put, it, put the three W's in just to make sure you get to the right place. Uh, you can register online. So there's a, there's a, It's a simple website. It's nothing fancy, but you have three, four, five pages that give you the speakers who are attending, which um, include a wide range of Catholics. Uh, the, the intention was to accentuate the positive aspects of Catholic social teaching, uh, which I think any mainstream uh, Catholic who does not consider himself a traditionalist, quote-unquote, is, is just as, um, should have just as much uh, interest in uh, the social teachings, and the social teachings should be just as accessible to him as they are to the to the hardest-line traditionalist over, you know, way over on uh, how, whatever spectrum we want to talk about. Uh, um, so we have uh, uh, Robert Hanton from the American Chesterton Society, who knows um, modern finance and insurance companies and whatnot pretty well? He's coming to talk about sort of uh, cooperative insurance as a, as an alternative to the big corporate conglomerates. And um, then we have Jim Condit, who is uh, who is a uh, admittedly uh, I won't say reckless, but he's very outspoken. You know, he calls it exactly like he sees it, and so he hits some hot topics. And uh, you know, people who are associated with him often have to put the flak jackets or the asbestos on and be prepared for a little. Um, response, but he's, I would say he's at the other end of the spectrum in terms of uh, a very fierce militant against uh, vote fraud and against the way in which modern election, the whole machinery of modern elections has been uh, manipulated to produce uh, the results that we have. Uh, we have John Venari kind of more in the middle, you know, so I have like a garden variety Catholic uh, traditionalist who's, who takes a very hard line against Vatican II, but doesn't get too outspoken about, uh, you know, what he thinks about the current pontiff and this type of thing. He's, he's much more uh, into just some solid uh, doctrine. Um, a, a very recent uh, late edition, which I'm happy to mention, is uh, Dr. White, uh, formerly uh, professor of literature at Annapolis, um, who's going to join us on um, the subject of the arts, like what, what role is uh, basically culture, if you will, in the arts, music, literature, etc., in a, in a vision of Christendom. And uh, you know, there are others, but you can go to the website and get a full list of who's of who's uh, speaking. 
And yeah, the and idea I, was to, yeah. Yeah, well, I was just going to, we haven't mentioned the date. It's August 24th, 25th, and 26th. Uh, this, uh, yeah, the, the weekend, weekend of, right, with the week. St. Louis the 9th, which is a very there you go. Right. fitting uh, fitting date. I, our youngest son, we named him after Louis the 9th, so... Um, we're, yeah, I, I think you know you have to. Conference, but we'll be celebrating we the this, uh, day. Yes, yes. Well, and that's good. And I think if you had to again, you know, just like we were looking for sort of catchphrases, if you will, to encapsulate what the social doctrine really means, I think if you look for a, a historical figure who incarnated it, it's certainly Saint Louis. Um, but uh, yeah, and, uh, and um, we're we're really running out of time here. And there's one last point that I think is important for us to yes. discuss quickly. We've uh-huh. only got about five yep. minutes to discuss it, but yeah, no it, it's important. And uh, I, we were talking about it before the show started when we were just getting ready to go. And that is the um, just thinking of the best way to put it. I mean. I hate to use the term being able to agree to disagree on certain things, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's in dealing with this field there's a certain merit to not getting bogged down of arguments over well he thinks Benedict the Sixteenth is Pope, I don't, so therefore I refuse to have anything to do with him. I'm not gonna work with yeah. him even on this social doctrine, even though we probably agree on everything else or right. know, he attends right. This mass, I attend that. You know, the mass with this priestly group, I attend with this, with this other priestly group, and without downplaying the importance of those things, because I think those are very important issues. I don't think that they're issues that preclude us from collaborating with other men of like mind on on things such as this. And I noticed from your your list of speakers at the conference that that seems to be a bit of a theme here of or theme there rather of you know you've got some people from different spectrum of uh, Catholic thought on these various issues but I think we can as important as those issues are we can work together and should work together yes. on yeah. on these things the type of things we've been talking yes. about today Right, and and I think we have to, and you're you're right to say that the conference lineup is designed to illustrate that very pointedly. Um, there were, I will say, there were a few who were on, originally on the lineup who dropped out because they couldn't sign up to that kind of a program. In other words, they felt that uh, the presence of certain others on the platform would jeopardize, you know, the reputation or whatever. And, and everyone was, you know, given a free pass. If you have to drop out, then drop out, you know, with no hard feelings, because the idea was. If we're going to have any success with this larger uh, struggle to really to recreate a movement in favor of the social teachings like existed in the 1930s, and I think you have to go back that far to get anything that's even remotely vibrant or successful or sort of on the map, you know, in terms of in the public eye. If that's going to be recreated, we have to understand that now we're recreating it in the context of not the Church of Quadragesimo Anno, which canonically and theologically and liturgically and historically is absolutely uncompromised. I mean, solid right down the line. There were all kinds of prudential mistakes. Like, I, I'm not a huge fan of Pius XI and how he dealt with the Cristeros or Action Francaise or a number of other issues, but, you know, theologically, liturgically, doctrinally, there's just no question that the Church was as solid in 1930 as she was in, you know, 1500. Um, whereas today, there's a crisis, and whether that crisis is a pontifical one in terms of, you know, 100 years from now, is it 
remotely possible or highly likely or anywhere in between that a modern pope will be declared an anti-pope well, won't be the first time in history, so fine if that's your view. Uh, if your view is it's a liturgical problem more than anything else, so be it. If it's a doctrinal issue that Vatican II is either questionable or has been interpreted wrongly or is overtly heretical or whatever, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I have my own views of these things. Each of the speakers does. I'm sure you and Mark do, and I know your your regular co-host does. Uh, they're often very controversial and heated, and I think that's good in one respect because Catholics are obliged to deal with certain theological principles. I mean, we all accept the fact that the Church cannot err, uh, that the Church can't teach error, the Church cannot approve uh, sort of positively and authoritatively and legally promulgate sacraments that are invalid. I mean, otherwise the whole structure of Catholicism uh, collapses. So we all accept these principles, but I think people have to be broad-minded enough to realize that men of goodwill who have studied the question, who are educated, can come to very different conclusions as to how to explain the situation that we're in. And a man like Gary Potter, who's, who's my senior in age and experience and has written for, uh, he was on the founding staff of Triumph Magazine back in the 60s, um, who I, I really revere him, uh, he's a regular Novus Ordo daily mass goer. And I've, you know a lot of people on the platform abhor the Novus Ordo for reasons that obviously we won't get into. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, Gary is a Catholic who's in charge of his own destiny. He has a conscience. He's an intelligent man. He can go to Mass wherever he pleases. And it doesn't touch me or it doesn't touch uh, the, the viability and the vibrance and the importance of the social teaching. And I think uh, your phrase, agree to disagree, is as good as any other phrase. My, my uh, approach to it tends to be that we all have to be man enough uh, and, and have the fortitude to leave other people to their own decisions when we have no reason to question that, that those decisions are made in, in goodwill and in good faith and after sufficient reflection. And if as a matter of charity, you know, in private over a martini, or in, in our case, maybe after the fourth or fifth martini, we want to say, you know, Gary, you really ought to get back to the old mass, well, then say so. But be prepared to have the drink thrown in your face and say, you know, I don't need you to lecture me. I'm a, I'm a big boy. I make my own decisions. But it doesn't mean that we're we're not all loyal uh, defenders of Christ the King, and I, I probably I know we're very much out of time, but I do want to say that really the only view of this matter that the conference attendees oppose, and I would, I think this is hopefully a, a thing I can put in everyone's mouth, although I'll withdraw if necessary. The only uh, approach to this question that we oppose is the notion that uh, a man who elects to believe something uh, in terms of interpreting the current crisis or pursue or follow a course of action that differs from my own is necessarily compromised. You know, in other words, that a Catholic has a right to presume the bad faith or the deceit or the treachery of somebody who just basically comes down on the other side of the question. And I think that's, um, I do think that's un-Catholic. It it's really falls in the category of rash judgment, and it's not appropriate. Um, and the success of a program of social teachings, like you mentioned, I think depends upon people giving each other the space to sort out for their own uh, for their own purposes uh, questions that admittedly are important but are just not essential to the to the question of capitalism, just wages, just prices, the the uh, viability and the importance of an agrarian lifestyle. I mean, none of this depends upon present papal no, teaching right. or Vatican II or whatever. Um, okay, well, I think that's our signal that. Uh that are we've run out of time and um
Hello? We uh, yeah, I'm, I'm... Okay. I, I'm, I can hear you. Okay, good. Um, anyway, I think uh, we've... Uh, that's our, <laughs> our signal that we've run out of time here. Um, John, thank you very much for joining us. Mark, thanks for filling in on fairly short, no- short notice as uh, co-host. Uh, you've been listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic was the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. Again, our guest was John Sharp of IHS Press, and I encourage our listeners to check out the um, webpage for the conference that he's hosting later this month. Uh, that um, I know I've forgotten the uh, was it restoringchristendom.com yeah it's re- rebuilding it's triple rebuilding w dot rebuilding or, yep. or also uh, ihspress.com uh, many many excellent books uh, on the very topic that we've been discussing available there and uh, again we're very grateful to have had uh, John Sharp with us I've been Nicholas Wansbutter your host uh, best known for uh uh, from Durandal, which would be, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Mark and I had a bit of a debate about this before the show. Uh, Roncos Valves, R E N C E V A L S dot blogspot dot com, or also I run uh, swordsinspace dot com. And uh, so we will leave you then with uh, playing again the uh, Kyrie from Mozart's Coronation Mass, and uh, thank you for listening. This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.